Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to today's show. Before we get started with another great episode of Finding Freedom here on Lines of Liberty, I want to talk to you about a new app that I've been uh, playing around with and using to uh, to network with like-minded people. It's called the Nomad Network. If you know Jason Stapleton, Wealth Powering Influence Podcast, he's been a guest on, uh, on Mark's show and Brian's show. Obviously, one thing he talks about is entrepreneurship and controlling the source of your income. If you know me, that is something I am passionate about as well, Getting mul- developing multiple streams of income. What the Nomad Network is, it's a, it's a community of, of people just like you, uh, liberty-minded people, people who uh, want to create freedom, who want to take control of their life, who want to focus on entrepreneurship and investment, um, looking for side hustles, uh, looking for things like that. You can join for free by going to www.nomadnetwork.app slash lion. And you know, it doesn't matter if you're already a business owner, if you have multiple businesses, if you just are thinking about taking the first steps to start that business, great place to find motivation, to meet like-minded people, maybe to uh, run across some people who can do different things for you, to help you out, web development, uh, Facebook advertising, things of that nature. There's a job posting board. You can join for free. Just go to www.nomadnetwork.com dot app slash lion and check it out today we are born free and we will die free the time in between though that's complicated in that time governments institutions and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life these are real stories of real people overcoming the odds persevering in justice and unlocking their potential welcome to finding freedom Here's your host, John Oderman. Okay, we are live. We are live with my guest today, Wendy Hechtman. Uh, Wendy has a, a powerful story that she's going to tell. And in, in addition to, to her story, um, the things that she's done um, recently since she's been out on home confinement, um, not only for her own um, employment that she's uh, developed and uh, founded a company, um, around that, but around helping other people who are in her same position, which you guys will learn about. There's about 4,000 prisoners out there right now who are out on home confinement due to the CARES Act, were released uh, you know, because of the pandemic, who are at risk of being sent back whenever the pandemic ends. So we'll, we'll get into all that, but I want to tell you a little bit about Wendy. Um, Wendy was an opiate addict. She's been clean for years now. Um, which this led her to being charged in a conspiracy uh, to manufacture. She served three years in prison, uh, most in Danbury, and she'll have four years total done at the end of this month since she's been serving on home confinement and has eight years remaining on her sentence. Um, She was released in December of 2020 due to the CARES Act, and since then, like I talked about at the top, she's been working as a property manager for a company that she founded that specializes in renting uh, to people who have been tied up in the in the criminal justice system. Um, she's also one of the co-founders of Don't Send Us Back, which is a network by and for people on home confinement to keep them up to date on what's happening and the effort to keep them home. Um, so like I talked about, they won't have to go back, which would be insane, but we'll get into talking about that. Uh, Wendy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> nice to see you. 
Nice to see you too, and thanks for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, this is uh, a very important topic that I think almost nobody is is talking about in the mainstream media. You don't hear it talked about in any of the the cable news shows, and it's really been when you think about it, um, it's really been a, a big experiment. And you know, four thousand prisoners released and. You know, are, are now working, adding value to society, spending time with their families. Things have gone very well from everything that I've seen, and uh, looks like there's there's a risk that uh, that yourself and many others could be could be sent back to prison. Um, and definitely, we will talk about that. But before we um, turn the page and talk about where you are now, I want to talk about where you were um, at the beginning. Uh, of this whole of this whole thing, um, so if you could just share with the audience to set the table, talk about uh, what your what your life was like, where you were, what you were doing um, prior to uh, your conspiracy charge. Oh, I was a mess. I was an opiate addict, really badly. Um, basically, uh, I had a complete mental breakdown uh, in the wake of a very unwanted divorce. And, um, I was at a party one time, you know, trying to like meet new friends again. And it was one of those horrible things where everybody's laughing and having a great time. And I just wanted to disappear. And somebody said, would you like to do a line of heroin? And I said, oh, that's a great idea. You know, normal me would never have done that. I was 39 years old at the time, Mm -hmm. like it's not like I was in that kind of lifestyle or anything like that typically. So, um, that's where it started. And I continued to do that. And I got involved with someone who was, um, quite the libertarian, so to speak, when it comes to, uh, using pharmaceuticals and, you know, we just, continue doing this together in order to feed both of our addictions. Uh, that's an expensive habit. And so we started buying precursors and stuff like that off the dark web and manufacturing. And also when you're nursing that, when, when kind you of say, addiction, you say precursors, what can you explain what you mean by that? Like the compounds that you use to put together to make those kind of chemicals. Okay. Yeah. Um, Basically, we had all different kinds of fentanyl analogs, like carfentanyl and alpha methyl fentanyl. Like, I, I don't know all the different chemistry names for them, mm-hmm. but we had them and, you know, we mixed in them and put them into, you know, formats where we could ingest them in various ways. And obviously, you know, when you're, holding that kind of an addiction, it's very difficult to hold regular employment. Um, Things get in the way, obviously. And so um, at that point, I got the brilliant idea that I would sell some of this stuff because we always had so much of it because it was very cheap to manufacture, you know? And so I thought that I would sell some and I didn't really want to make a huge profit or anything, you know, just enough to pay the bills. And it wasn't long before we had a whole lot of regular customers. But of course, you know, people talk, everybody talks and, you know, people get pulled over for running a stop sign Mm -hmm. in a stolen car and they say, I know about a fentanyl ring 
<laughs> and then, you know, police investigate you. And so um, there was an investigation. It was probably about six months between March and September um, 2017. And on October 30th, they came and broke down our front door and did the whole raid the house, take us out and put us in the cop shop. And we never came out. So, so when you were going through this whole time when you're, you know, manufacturing your own drugs, was going to prison something that, that crossed your mind? Was it something you were thinking about or you, you just didn't care about the risk or? Honestly, at the end, I was hoping for it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, to, I, I knew that we were risking prison. But I thought that we would get, I mean, I was a first time offender. I had like two speeding tickets, you know? So I thought that I would get like a five year sentence and I would be out in like three, three and a half, you know, like that, that seemed logical to me, but I didn't take into account that we live in a country with some pretty ferocious mandatory minimum laws. Um, so when I was charged, I was charged with a with a, a statute that carries a ten year minimum sentence, a mandatory minimum sentence, and on top of it, I was enhanced, uh, given an enhancement to it as a, a leadership role, um, which boosted my sentence up even further. And so that was how I ended up being handed down a fifteen year sentence, despite the fact that again I have two speeding tickets to my name. What's the the leadership role is like something like if you yeah. sold to someone and they sold to someone else, then it's like considered something like that. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really about that simple too. Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, when I got out and I was able to read the articles that were written, you know, about our adventures and, um, you know, I saw that, there were all these statements like that we had this huge network and all these people working for us and stuff. And I was like, we couldn't put together $300 to get a friend of ours out of town on a Greyhound bus. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this, this wasn't some El Chapo operation here. This was like a lot of desperate people, you know, using drugs and just trying to keep their habits functional is what it really mm -hmm. was. And some of us had skills that others didn't, you know, I, I, I was never ordering anybody to sell anything. I was never telling them what to sell, when to sell, where to sell, to whom to sell, nothing like that. I just gave them a large quantity and they did whatever they wanted with it. And, you know, if anything, like they would come to us and say, we need you to cook this. You need to cook this much of it. You know, it needs to be this strong. That other stuff you cooked was terrible. It wasn't strong enough, you know? So I'm like, who is running who here? <laughs> I mean, every, everybody had a part in it. I'm not trying to claim mm -hmm. that I was innocent at all because I most certainly was not. But um, the idea of giving me an enhancement for a, a queen pin role, when you look at what I was actually doing compared to, you you know, like I'm not like Griselda Blanco or something here. Like it was just crazy. It's not what people would normally think of as a queen pen or whatever. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's something that, that I've seen. I've seen a lot of other cases. And I, I mean, I've seen people given that kingpin or queenpin label when there's not even any drugs that were found. It's all just based on hearsay ghost dope. So right, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's something that, so, that they like to like to throw around. Right. So when we got like toward the end, you know, I mean, th- living that kind of a life, it gets really crazy. It just does largely due to the illegal nature of it, you know, because in order, because it's illegal, people are, it attracts people that are desperate and doing desperate mm-hmm. things. I include myself in that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not yeah, very, shade very, very risky behavior. Yeah. You're, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't bring good things with it. Right. And, you know, things were really crazy. There were all these people, all these demands. Some people were really rough, you know, I mean, I was never hurt or anything like that, but sometimes I was a little bit concerned about what was going to be going on here and what people were actually going to be doing. And there was a moment I remember it was probably about three or four weeks before we were arrested and I remember sitting in my living room and looking around and I just sighed and I just thought to myself, if they came and arrested us, I would finally stop using and I wouldn't be addicted anymore and I wouldn't have to do this anymore. And then my wish came true. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how did it go down? How were you arrested? they literally broke down our front door at like seven o'clock in the morning. I knew that they were coming because the night before um, the person who we kind of suspected was being a confidential informant. Like it was one of those things where they actually even have a video, you know, like where they uh, clandestinely, you know, video record you. And I actually say to her on the video, well, Shelly, if you really are narc, I'm going to look really stupid on the control by videos. (laughs) <laughs> I'm wow. actually seen saying that on my own controlled by videos. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, I kind of knew. And so she, she had messaged me the night before and she was like, are you going to be home at about 7am? I was like, of course I will. Yeah. She was like, okay, I'm going to stop by and give you some money, you know? And I was like, okay, cool. She was like, yeah, I have to drop off, you know, my kid for soccer practice. So I'll be there at like seven. And I'm like, seven o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Was that normal? I mean, was that like a normal thing? In October? No, it wasn't normal at all. Why would a kid be going to a soccer practice on a Tuesday at 7 a.m.? Doesn't make any sense. Right. It made no (laughs) sense. And I was, and I mean, the kid was like eight or nine, you know, I was just like, and I remember I went and I told uh, my, uh, my former husband, I was like, so they're coming and they're coming heavy and they're not going to go away empty handed we need to clean house, you know, like we need to get rid of things. Right. But he was high. And this other girl who was staying with us, she was high too. And they were all just kind of paranoid and in their own world or whatever. And then I realized that nothing was going to happen. They weren't going to clean anything and we were going to be caught anyway. And so I just sat down and popped open a Corona and waited, you know, because I knew Mm -hmm. it was coming. And so they start pounding on the door at seven and my then husband and my roommate, you know, were looking at me like, oh, my God, panicking. And I'm just sitting there back in the chair with my beer in my hand, smoking a cigarette, you know, like, all right, let's go. You know, because I knew they were coming. They came in and I was like, hi. You know, and they, I mean, they're all aggressive like they're cops. You know, they're like, 
hands up, you know, whatever. And I was just like, hi guys. Nice to see you. Yeah. You know, I, I just didn't care at that point. I did not care at all. I was just done. So they took us out. They took us to the cop shop, separated us, of course. Um, you know, the cop came into the room and said, you know, you're under arrest for, I don't even remember what initially they charged us with. And they said, uh, you know, you have a right to remain silent and all that. Uh, do you have anything you would like to say? And I said, I want a lawyer because, you know, my previous life before this, I was a lawyer's wife for 10 years. So I know damn well, you don't say anything to a cop other than I want a lawyer. Those are the only right. four words you ever say to a cop. Apparently though, I'm the only criminal on earth who knows this because you know, I could not believe it when I got my discovery. I'm like, guys, didn't we talk about this? Like, doo, 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 doo. you know, I, so I was the only one who asked for a lawyer. Uh, well, no, my then husband also asked for a lawyer, you know, like he knew that too. I, I don't want to cast any shade at him on front for that. And um, everybody else though, doo, 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 you know, just all kinds of talk. And mm -hmm. I, honestly, whether or not to talk and cooperate, that's a personal decision for people that they should make in conjunction with their attorney. And I completely understand if that is in somebody's best interest to cooperate. I'm not one of these people who, you know, wants to like beat people up for whatever. We all do what we have to do to get through the night, you know, and nobody else is going to take care of you and your family. Right. So I don't care about that. But what blew my mind was that they didn't talk to their attorneys first, you know? And I'm like, come on, you know, at least talk to your attorney first and get a handle on what you should say and how to say it and how to present it. And no, they just handed it over, you know, like dessert before anybody had even eaten supper. So I, I was kind of appalled by that. So yeah. we were there for a while. Then they took us to the local County jail, Douglas County corrections in Omaha, Nebraska. And, uh, we were booked in and I knew that I was going to be going through withdrawal, you know, and when you're checking in, they ask you like, uh, are you on any drugs? And I, you know, I said, I'm an opiate addict. I'm going to be going through withdrawal soon, probably in about 12 hours. I'm going to be feeling pretty miserable. They said, okay. Had you gone through in. withdrawal like that before, before? Was that so something you were prepared for or you um, knew what to expect? Yeah. I knew what to expect because yeah. since, since it's illegal, Sometimes, you know, we would run out of supply. It's not always a steady stream of supply. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's not like being addicted to Diet Coke, you know, where I can just go to the store and get some at any time. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes I'd run out and I had the great misfortune that I'm one of these people that goes through withdrawal very, 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 very badly. Um, it affects me terribly, which is really strange because I've had two kids without any drugs. And I didn't have a problem with it at all. So, you know, I'm not a wimp when it comes to pain. I've got a whole host of tattoos, you know, in places like right on the bone where it should hurt like crazy and I can handle it. So, mm -hmm. but when it came to opiate withdrawal, I was just a mess. And so I knew that I was going to be hurting really bad. I didn't, I honestly... At that point in my life, I had been using opiates steadily for about three years. And at that point, I truly thought that I would not be able 
to be a functional human being again without them or without something like Suboxone or Methadone or something like that. I truly believed that with all of every fiber of my being. And for the next six weeks, I was just clutching the cement floor in that county jail, just feeling so miserable and so weak. And I remember about three weeks in, I woke up one morning and I didn't feel terrible. Hmm. My body was actually relaxed. I was starving hungry. Um, I was weak, but I, I didn't feel horrible anymore. You know, I was like, Oh, and after that slowly, it took another couple of weeks to really, you know, be able to where I could actually stay up for a whole day, you know, where I could eat enough where I didn't, you know, feel sick to my stomach anymore random times during the day. And then that was about the same time that they came to federally indict us. Cause initially we were arrested on state charges. Okay. And um, so they came to get us from the County jail to take us to the federal courthouse to arrest us federally for our federal charges. And um, the same guys who arrested me that day at my house are the ones who came to the County jail to pick me up, to give me a ride to the federal courthouse. And they were like, you know, I was sitting there waiting in the holding tank and they came in they're like, hello, Wendy, we're here to take you to the courthouse today. And I said, thank you. And they just kind of looked at me and they're like, for what? For taking you to the courthouse? I said, no, for arresting me. I'm sober now. I, I'm not addicted to opiates anymore. And at least I'm not owned by that. No matter what happens next, at least I have that. Anything else, fine, bring it. I can handle it. Mm. At least I don't have... Being owned by a substance like that was the worst feeling ever. It was... I hated feeling so powerless and so possessed, you know? And um, so I was just so grateful. And yes, I would have rather had it be under a circumstance other than incarceration, but I was going to take it because... I wanted to be done. I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I was just so happy, you know, that I was done. So I went to court, you know, got arrested, got indicted. And then we spent about the next 10 months in the jail waiting for the court process to play out. I had a one and a half million dollar bail. So I wasn't getting out on free trial. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. That is insane. Yeah, it was rough. <laughs> so I wasn't getting out on free trial. And, and uh, Douglas County Corrections, like, it's it's a real jail. You know, they have all different kinds of security levels there. This is not like some relaxed, casual place. Um, you know, everything. It's a very, like, by the rule book facility, you know. And at the time, I hated being there because it was so strict and petty about everything. But having been in some other facilities now, I can honestly say that, like, that ship has run pretty tight. You know, they do a good job there as far as jailing goes. So yeah, that was done. And I used to always joke when I was there that the entire purpose of jail is to make you grateful by the time you're going to prison. <laughs> I used to always say like, I can't wait to go to prison. I was so excited about it just to get out of there. But once you got out of there, did I mean, maybe you missed it a little bit. It sounds like. But. I miss some of the people. It, it yeah. sounds weird, yeah. but 
when you run into people who work in incarceration, who understand that we, the incarcerated, are not actually monsters, that the mm -hmm. only difference between us and them is timing and opportunity, it goes pretty well. Because working for that kind of a bureaucracy isn't that much more fun than, you know, living in that bureaucracy. It's probably the only difference is they, they get to go home for a couple hours. Every yeah. Night. They get to go home for a couple of hours. They yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, that's, that's a, that's a big difference, but. Depends how great so your home when, is. When, <laughs> yeah. So w when you got to prison, what was that experience like? Was it what you expected? Did it take you by surprise? What were the conditions like? Um, well, okay. So, when you're in jail and you're being held there on pretrial, they then take you to um, like a transfer type facility. Mm -hmm. um, usually it's one of the private prisons run by like Core Civic or uh, Correction Centers of America, whatever name they're going by now. They're always, it's always the same company. They just keep reinventing themselves. So I went to one of those in Leavenworth, Kansas for about three months. And then I went to the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City for about three weeks. And then I landed in Danbury. And it was funny because um, there's this pervasive myth uh, in the Federal Bureau of Prisons that if you have more than 10 years on your sentence, you can't go to a camp. And that's true for men. But for women, amount of time is not part of their security setting points. So I thought that when I went to Danbury that I was going to be going to the women's low that's there. So we get there and they're dividing us up and they're like, okay, Hectman, you're going to the camp. And I was like, no, I, I can't go to the camp. I have 15 years. I'm supposed to go to the low. And the social worker there looks at me. She's like, no, trust me. You do not want to go there. Go over there now. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know? So I went there. I got to the camp and I was really surprised by what an informal setting it was. I had mm -hmm. read um, the book, um, obviously, that like everybody's heard of, unless you've been under a rock for the last 10 years, Orange is the New Black. I read mm -hmm. that when I was in Leavenworth because that's the prison that Piper Kerman went to. And the book is way different than the show. You know, the book is more of an actual like, so I went to this place and this is what happened type account. And it, it, it was... I got to Danbury like almost 15 years after she was there and it really wasn't much different. In fact, some of the officers that she talks about in that book were still there when I got wow. there. Yeah. So um, I remember when I got there my first night and, you know, they tell me where my bunk is and stuff and I go in and I'm all happily setting up my sheets and stuff like that. And this one girl looks at me like, that's odd. Cause most people who go to Danbury, most of them, are self-surrenders, you know, like they live there uh, in the general area and they're on, you know, some small white collar offense. So they, they don't get held on free trial and they show up, you know, when they're told to report. So, um, so they're usually really sad when they first get there. Some of them like cry and cry and cry and here I am all like, da, 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 you know, housekeeping setting up because I was so happy that like I wasn't in a cell with bars anymore, you know, and that I was getting in a real bed with real sheets, real blankets. And oh, my gosh, someone gave me a pillow. It was the most wonderful thing ever. Right. And mm -hmm. the girl looks at me like, 
what's going on with you? You know, like this, this is a very strange reaction to coming to prison. She's like, is this your first time in prison? I was like, yeah, this is my first offense. And she looks at me again. She goes, you didn't get on pretrial, did you? And I said, no, I've been locked up for a year in county holdings. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I understand why you're happy now. And it was so great. They turned off the lights that night and it was actually dark. And I was so happy about this because in those kind of facilities I was at previously, they keep the lights on 24 seven and it's so hard to sleep. So I was in a comfortable bed that wasn't a gym mat. I had a pillow. It was dark at night. I was fine with this. I was okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For a so, while. so were you in Danbury the, your entire time then? The yes, rest of the I way? got there February of 2019, and I left in December of 2020. So I was there for just under two years. Okay. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, I wasn't that thrilled every day, but I used to always tell people, like, as far as prison goes, you know, it wasn't that bad. It was very – it was relaxed as one can be in a prison, you know, and – I worked construction and general maintenance and it was so nice because I got out of the actual camp each day and went and saw like the other buildings, you know, like the, the staff housing or like uh, we did clean up uh, at the lake area that we have and, you know, things like that. So I, I spent a lot of the day away and the guys who ran the, uh, the construction general maintenance crews, you know, and the the services like the garage, electric, plumbing, et cetera. Like they were just really great guys and they really treated us like um, completely normal workers. You know, they, they used to say like, I don't care, you know, what you did beforehand. You know, you come down mm-hmm. here, you, you act respectable and I'll respect you. It's fine. And they meant it. They treated us good. And that was where I started building back up my myself. All right, guys, want to take a quick break in the show today to tell you about I Trust Capital. If you're someone who maybe has a, you know, an old 401k that you moved into an IRA somewhere when you left a job, you just have the money sitting there. What do you do with it? Try to invest in stocks, whatever other bull crap out there. What if you could invest that money in crypto, invest it in physical gold and silver? Well, you can do that with iTrust Capital. But with iTrust Capital, you have the tax benefits of an IRA while trading in crypto assets. And on top of that, like I said, you can also have access to buying physical gold and silver into your account. It's it's amazing. If you sign up using promo code LIONS at iTrust Capital, you'll get the first month free. Now, iTrust Capital is safe and secure. Uh, They are backed by Coinbase Custody and Curve uh, to secure clients' digital assets. And they have 320 millions of insurance to make sure your funds are safe and secure. On top of that, they are trusted. They have 1,300 reviews on Trustpilot and they are 100% transparent in their fees, which you know I can't really say that about all other IRA providers. Now, whether you're holding your assets long-term or you want to buy and sell with the market, iTrust Capital's IRA gives your account or provides the account the lowest transaction fees for buying Bitcoin or other digital currencies. As an iTrust client, you'll be able to log into your account, make trades 24-7, trades execute in real time, and settle in seconds. 
Um, they offer more cryptocurrencies than any other crypto IRA provider out there, and they're adding more all the time. Go to itrustcapital.com, use promo code LIONS for your first month free. Which is which is good because I I've heard that's it's not that way at a, at a at a lot of camps. So that's good that you have that not. experience. Yeah, it's not. I was extremely privileged. Extremely yeah. privileged. My 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 experience was not typical, and nobody should take it that way. Hmm. Um. So, getting out of home confinement. How did? Yeah. How did, how did that go down? Is that something that that you were seeking, or is that something that sort of happened to you or no i wasn't seeking it at all in fact i thought that people were crazy because <laughs> covid we started hearing about covid in january of 2020 and uh people were like what do you think about this coronavirus you think it's gonna go crazy and like we might get out of prison and i was like hey, you people are crazy this is like h1n1 it's gonna go away everybody's gonna get vaccinated it's not even gonna be anything at all it's gonna be just drama 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 whatever mm-hmm. Around February, early March, I started thinking that maybe I was wrong in that assessment because even though we didn't have it in the camp yet, and I don't, if we had it at the place in general, because there's also a men's low there as well, if it was there in general, we weren't aware of it yet. So we weren't aware of it actually until April. So I started thinking that, you know, this is a little bit more than I expected because we, we had TVs there. So we watched the news every day. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you remember when this came out, it was on the news 24 uh, seven, right? I, I mean, it still is, but, but yeah, yeah. it was when, yeah, the February, March, 2020. Oh yeah. I, I remember that very well. It was big. So, mm-hmm. so then, um, you know, people started saying like, maybe we'll get out of prison for this. And then I was like, Oh, you people are drunk. That's not going to happen. And like, come on, this is the BOP. They don't care about us. They're not going to let us out of prison. And then at the end of March, I think, there was a memo that came out from Bill Barr and the Department of Justice that basically said, like, we need to get some of these people that are, you know, not violent, low recidivism risk, get them out of there. Because the way that you stop the spread is that you can't be close to each other, right? Well, in a prison, you're all close together. Most of them are packed Mm -hmm. and crowded Mm -hmm. and you're living in these very close settings. So the only hope you have for avoiding a nasty outbreak amongst all of them is to thin out the ranks, right? And a lot of people are, you know, there was, of course, the common attitude of like, well, who cares? They're prisoners, you know, like forget them. But the thing is, if we get sick inside, our officers get sick too. And they go shopping at your grocery store. They go to your school to drop off their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, their wives are nurses in your hospital. You know, so it, it infects the whole community. It's prisons are not an oasis unto themselves. You know, it's bad. So they did have to thin us out. So the, at the end of March, beginning of April, these memos start coming out talking about putting us on home confinement. It still wasn't clicking in my brain because I said, oh, no, I've got so much time left and I'm here on a fentanyl charge. They're never going to let me out. You know, so I just didn't think of it. But I wanted <laughs> And you had that $1.5 million bail. So, I mean, <laughs> that's in the past at <laughs> that point, but still, you're, yeah, it's, yeah. 
way. I'm like, I'm somebody who was arrested on a $1.5 million bail. They're not letting me go anywhere. Right. So, um, you know, but I really wanted people to get out because we did have some women in that camp who had some very serious health issues. We had people with uh, autoimmune disorders such mm -hmm. as sickle cell anemia and lupus. We had people who uh, had like COPD, severe asthma, various kinds of heart conditions. Um, there was a woman there who could barely breathe anyway because she'd had like lung cancer in the past and still had serious lung issues. We had several cancer survivors, a couple of people who even still had cancer and were in the course of treatments. And I remember just looking at all of them and thinking from what I'm seeing on the news, right? I was like, these people are going to be really hurting if they don't get out of here, you know? So I wanted to help them in any way I could, you know, like filing request forms and asking to please be considered for this or whatever. But I still wasn't thinking about myself. And... Then, you know, they started, you know, asking people to fill out paperwork to go to home confinement. And we started noticing that they weren't basing it on how ill somebody might be or their medical vulnerability. They were basing it solely on how much time they had completed and how much time they had left. Well, what does that have to do with your risk factors for catching COVID? That doesn't make any sense at all. So some people uh, in our camp were understandably upset about this. We had this perfect storm of a situation where one of our members' daughter was in law school at Quinnipiac, which is a, a local law school here. Mm -hmm. And then so somehow people found out about it because initially we approached the ACLU and they were dealing with a different lawsuit at the time. And then they talked to a professor that was at Quinnipiac about it just in the course of, because, you know, these people all hang out together and talk and say, Oh, I ran into this situation. And then she was talking about it in her class and our camp sister, her daughter was in that class and, you know, interjected and knew some things about it. And after class, she asked her, how did you know so much about this? And she said, my mother is there. Oh, wow. And at that point, that was how it started. And so they took their legal students and looked into it. And so they filed a lawsuit basically saying, hey, Bill Barr's memo said that you're supposed to be paying attention to our medical vulnerability, and you're not doing that. And by a complete miracle, we managed to get it in front of a judge in Connecticut who agreed and threw down a temporary restraining order saying, no, you have to implement it this way. So he basically took the bar memos and said, no, this is how you're supposed to do this. You need to assess them based on this, that, and the other. And they said, okay. So they started throwing people out. And even still, I was not thinking of myself because I was like, I'm not medically vulnerable. I don't have diabetes. I'm not that old. I'm robust and healthy. I'm fine. But what I didn't think of is that, like most Americans, I have a BMI over 30. And that puts you at significant risk for COVID, even though it's really not that large, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so as time wore on, like in April, because I had a perfect track record in prison, they, you know, asked me to come forward to fill out paperwork to go home. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Okay. So they filled out the paperwork. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, like anybody else, they took it away. 
because, you know, they said, oh, you haven't done enough time, you know, and it went back and forth and back and forth like that. And, you know, they kept, we kept going back and forth and back and forth in court, you know, where the judge would say like, no, you're supposed to give most of the, you know, weight to their medical vulnerability, not their time. How many times do I have to tell you people this? You know, <laughs> he told them this over and over again. Finally, in December, and during all this time, we were so lucky. We never got COVID at the camp until the end of November. So, you know, there wasn't a whole sense of urgency, you know, during that time because we didn't have it. Well, at the right. end of November, we got it. And so at that time, you know, I, I luckily, I don't know how, I'm one of the very few people there who didn't get it, but I did not contract it. And so at that time, you know, have you, have you had I, your antibodies tested? Are you sure you maybe just didn't have, you know, a mild case? Which you know happens? what? I never have. And yeah. it, it's very possible that I did. Who knows? But mm -hmm. so at that point, I had been approved to go home since August. They had finally given up and said, okay, fine. We'll approve Wendy to go home. But then they kept throwing up all kinds of silly little, um, my dog here is playing with me. That's why I keep reaching back. They kept throwing up all kinds of silly little, um, you know, things in the way. Like they had, like I lived for quite a significant amount of time in Canada. I'm a dual citizen. So they decided that they had to check with Interpol to make sure that I didn't have any outstanding crime there. That took like six weeks to come back. It, it was just really crazy. So December came. And the judge found out that there were people who had been, you know, approved for home confinement for months who were still there. And so he ordered us all out like within 48 hours. And that was how I got out. Wow. So, so when you got out, I mean, you got to find a place to live. You got to find a job. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So you're out. What, what what happens then? I mean, how how do you how did you find a place to live? Um, <laughs> well, I was I've had nothing but luck, honestly. Ever since I stopped using opiates, um, I've had the most lucky experience ever. You know, don't get me wrong; there are parts of it that were very difficult to go through, mm -hmm. but I've led an extraordinarily charmed and privileged existence in this. Um, when it came time to let me out, there were a lot of problems because the judge didn't want to throw me on a plane to go to Omaha to stay with my parents because, you know, I was coming out of a building filled with COVID. So, you know, he was worried that I might go and get on a plane and give a bunch of people COVID, right? So th that wasn't a good idea. So um, there were some options. And one of them, the lawyer who was working our case, the one I told you about, you know, who talked to her class, she asked me, she said, listen, we're trying to try to get you into, you know, this place in New York City. We're going to try to get you into this other place in Newark. And the other option is if all else fails, you can come and quarantine in my basement until we figure this out. And she's like, do you have any preference? I said, my preference is wherever the judge thinks I should go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Well, I ended up in her basement for two weeks while they sorted all this out oh, wow. and quarantining to make sure that I didn't have COVID and getting mm -hmm. tested and stuff like that. Um, so they did a relocation for me while I was in her basement and let me stay here in Connecticut. And that was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. Um, from there, I went to go live in a sober living house. Um, and that was how I started getting back on my feet. And I got a job 
initially working uh, as a virtual assistant for an employment agency that specialized in finding employment for uh, people who have had criminal justice involvement. Mm-hmm. And eventually I found an investor and bought our first property, um, which is a triplex what we're starting with. We have our eye on a couple more and our mission statement is because it's difficult to find a uh, secure and affordable housing when you've had uh, a criminal background, because yeah. a lot of times they'll look at it and they'll discount you or they'll charge you a premium for it. Um, so our mission is that we target and are uh, very open and supportive to people who have had criminal justice involvement. We think that it should be based on whether or not you can pay your rent and not what you may have done in the past. That is that is so awesome. Yeah, because that I mean, that is finding a place to live, which is why I asked you how, how you did it. Um, <laughs> that's probably the number one thing that, that, that people say, you know, because I mean, you have to have a place to live, but. Yeah, it's it's not it's not something that that is easy to do when you have a criminal record. So that 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 is awesome. So th- that's in motion right now. So so um talking to my audience, keep this in mind. So you have someone out who's on home confinement, working, looking to start a business and uh all this time there's still the chance that, that you could go back. Yeah. So when we were released a lot of people asked our case managers and stuff, hey, are we going to have to come back? And they said, no, not unless you do something to put yourself back by acting stupid and breaking your rules, you know, like doing drugs, drinking, not checking in, that sort of thing. They were like, no, unless you put yourself back here, you're not coming back. It's fine. Okay, cool. And there were a lot of people, myself included, who said, if I have to come back, I don't want to get out because I. it was hard enough on my family losing me once. I don't want to do that again to them, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got out based on this. And then in January, right before um, the changeover with between the presidents, there was a, a, a memo came out from the Office of Legal Counsel from the Department of Justice that the Bureau of Prisons had asked do we still have the right to keep them out on home confinement uh, once the emergency pandemic period is over? And the office of legal counsel said, no, you don't. Which in theory means that we would all have to go back. Um, Unless you meet the standard that they have for BOP to put you out on home confinement, which is either six months or uh, 10% of your sentence, whichever is shorter. So um, that caused, obviously, a lot of panic in people. Um, People freaked out. You know, obviously, there were people who were like, what do I do? Can can, do I buy a house? Do I get married? I mean, do you know how many uh, of the women are out here pregnant? And several of the guys, you know, their wives Mm -hmm. are pregnant, you know, like. Well, I I had on. probably about a month or two ago, I had on a, a woman's uh, fiance who she got, she got pulled back in for, for being violated for something absurd. She was doing her job and was with her, her manager and they, with the GPS yeah. tracker, they said that she was out of, you know, out of her, her range or out of her area. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, I've had two, two different women on like that. It's, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Her baby's due in 12 days. 
and she's yeah. still in prison because they've doubled down. Like of all the things to do, of all the things to dig your heels in on, they're digging their heels on keeping a pregnant woman in a COVID infested prison when she's only got five months left on her sentence anyway, and she should Disgusting. be out. Like, like who is benefiting from that? I can't figure that. Who is winning here? And again, every single person that the Bureau of Prisons put out, every single one of us, none of us are violent. None of us are threats to the community. We all had immaculate prison records. We were all tested and like assessed for having the lowest recidivism risk possible, you know? So it, mm -hmm. it's not like people were being let out, you know, who hadn't done any changing who hadn't my, my, my theory is, and I mean, you can tell me if you agree or not, but the reason why there is this pushback and there is this, this, this risk of, of, you know, having to go back to prison is because if, if you let 4,000 prisoners out and it goes well, well, maybe they sh maybe you should let more out, you know, maybe they're, maybe this prison system doesn't need to be as, as big as it is. Um, you know what? It, it's true. And, you know, so, okay, there's a, there's a pushback, you know, partially like, oh, well, no, we have to follow these rules. And then there's like a mean-spirited pushback also, you know, like, oh, well, screw you guys, you know, you, you can't do the time, don't do the crime, you know, that kind of mentality. But here's the thing, even if you're like, yeah, screw the prisoners, okay, I'm just being real, in the camps, which is where most of us came from, Life is really not that difficult. Most of our time is spent like watching TV, you know, like just literally doing time, waiting for the time to pass, you know. And people say like, oh, well, you know, you guys should be taking all kinds of programming and education and doing like work projects, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Do you know how much money that costs? It already costs a bare minimum of $35,000 a year to incarcerate each one of us. Mm -hmm. That's for somebody who's completely healthy and doesn't have any health problems whatsoever or anything like that. Now turn it around where it's about 13000 to keep one of us out on an ankle monitor, which is what we're out on right now. I was in on a very serious drug charge. In the entire three years that I was locked up, I was never once drug tested. Never. Okay? And I didn't use it anymore because I once I got free, I was like, thank you, Lord, I am done. But that was by my choice. Because if I wanted to, as anybody who has been incarcerated knows, there's plenty of drugs available in any prison setting. You mm -hmm. know, it, it's just a joke. When I was there, I took a really basic, like, uh, drug and alcohol education course that honestly could be summed up as drugs are bad, don't use drugs. You might go to jail if you use them. Like, you know, basic stuff that anybody already knows. Since I've been out, I get drug and alcohol tested at least once a week. Okay. Um, I'm on an ankle monitor, so I'm constantly accountable for my whereabouts. Um, you know, I, I mean, people know this if they read the news, but you can walk off from those camps and just go out to the road and meet people and stuff. I can't walk out to the road from my in front of my house. With this ankle monitor on, okay? Because mm -hmm. they notice it. Now that I'm out, I actually go to counseling twice a week for the whole time that I've been out. You know, uh, group counseling and drug and alcohol counseling, both. Okay? Um, I'm able to go to uh, meetings about that, like support group meetings about mm -hmm. it. 
and I'm required to work and have, you know, a job and do things. I'm accountable out here in a way that simply doesn't happen in prison. Prison at the level that I was at, again, and I realized it was very privileged. It's nothing but an adult daycare. That is all that it is. So if you really want to stick it to somebody, honestly, keep them out here. Make them be responsible and accountable and, you know, getting a life and like, this is basic one-on-one on how to act right. You know, it, it really is. It isn't a big part of it when, when when you're in prison, you know, it's it's just as hard, if not harder, on on the family than it is on the one doing the time. Um and, and at least at least when someone's out on home confinement, they can see their family. You know, they, they can right. they can be a part of their family's life. Um Right. Like uh I said earlier that I was a dual Canadian citizen. My kids actually live in Canada. My oldest is twenty four, my youngest is ten. Um, they, even though they live in Canada, it's only a five hour drive by car. So Mm -hmm. it's not that bad, you know, like we're fine with that. Luckily we're a very tech savvy family. We video chat like multiple times a week. We text every day, you know, and I'm able to be in connection with them in a way that I simply wasn't able to be when I was in prison. And it takes such a relief off their shoulders, you know, like, my 10-year-old, obviously, was the one who was most upset about my incarceration. And when I got out, he said to me, Mommy, if you got out because of COVID, are you going to have to go back when COVID is over? I said, no, baby. You know, they said, unless, you know, Mommy breaks the rules, I don't have to go back. And Mommy's not going to break rules anymore because Mommy wants to stay out with you. And the next freaking day that OLC memo came out. Now, since then, uh, my older two kids and my 12 year old, because I can't keep him off the internet because he's 12. Um, so he read about this. He didn't panic though. He said, I don't think they're going to send you back, mommy. There's no way they would do something that dumb. Well, I'm glad that he thinks so. <laughs> I hope he's right. But, yeah. Right. But we've all, we've all worked very hard to not let my 10 year old know because he was so upset when I was taken back before. So that's why I've been working so hard and advocating so strongly to make it happen. Because first of all, I don't want it to happen because I don't want to do that to him again. And secondly, if God forbid they do take me back, I want my family to be able to sit him down and say, listen, this is what mommy did. This is how hard she fought to not have to do this to you. And yeah, so that's where my fight comes from. That's where my, like, I literally spend 12, 15 hours a day, you know, talking to other people, organizing with them, networking, talking to various advocacy groups, doing anything I possibly can to get this message out there so that people pressure their senators, their congressional reps, and yes, the president to solve mm-hmm. this problem. And absolutely. And, um, you know, that's, that's a ton of work and I'm glad you, I'm glad you explained your, your why, you know, it's, 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 it's your kids, it's your family that, you know, that's pushing you to fight not only for yourself, but for, for other people too. So tell us about, don't send us back.org. Um, how can people help? How can someone get involved um, if they can? Sure. Um, so there have been several groups that have 
you know, taken up this cause. Um, first of all, the, the people of families and mandatory minimums, bam, like if it wasn't for them, nobody would even know who we are. Okay. They really started it. They took the ball and they ran with it. And after that, there are so many other groups that came on, you know, like the ACLU, Color of Change, uh, Justice Action Network, uh, the Reform Alliance, um, Can Do Clemency. Um, you know, there's this woman who writes this awesome blog inside the walls and beyond. Um, and there's so many just like individuals who are also advocating as well. Like, it's amazing how many groups have come together, uh, right on crime, law enforcement leaders, uh, the ACUF. This is mm -hmm. not just like some leftist hippie claptrap. Okay. There's like hardcore, like Brett Tolman is sitting here promoting this cause. All right. Yeah. The, like, the right, the right is very big on justice. Reform. Absolutely. Yeah. They're completely down with this. So I honestly, I've never seen such a bipartisan agreement on this issue. So all these groups were working, you know, on this and at the same, while we were very grateful for this, at the same time, we also recognized, you know, we are not the only problem in the world for criminal justice reform right now. Like there are people still sitting in prison. At least we're out. Mm -hmm. There are tens of thousands of people that are CARES Act eligible who should be home on home confinement. They're being held because the wardens largely consider the CARES program optional, you know, and they should be out too. So, I thought, and, you know, I talked to some other people who were in this position. We thought, you know what, let's get a group together so that we can just update people about the news and, you know, keep each other updated that way. Let people know about what's going on and how we're organizing and what's being done for us and stuff like that. You know, basically like a press release kind of place in a way, just keeping mm -hmm. people updated of the news. And, you know, also because... We ran into several people just, you know, in the course of trying to find each other to let people know that this could be an issue who had no idea that this had even come up. And this is, you know, months into it, like even back in September, you know, that they had no clue that this was even an issue. So we wanted to be able to promote it to let people know, like, hey, you need to be aware and, you know, be active and involved to help protect yourself and move forward. So... We bought the domain, don'tsendusback.org, uh, and people can sign up there so that, you know, we, you can be on a mailing list and things like that. We have a, a very active Facebook group, uh, Don't Send Us Back, and if you search for it on Facebook, you can find it and you can apply to join. And it's, um, you know, us, people who are on home confinement, our loved ones, family and supporters, you know, uh, my daughter and my ex-husband both are in it, you know, to support mm -hmm. me along with it. Um, and we also have several uh, advocates in there as well. There are a lot of people in there that are uh, advocating for us to continue this way. So that was how we started it. And so also what, another thing that we've done is um, a lot of times they need people to come on um, shows like this to be on discussion panels to, uh, you know, when they get a reporter who finally wants to write a story or do uh, a TV interview or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so we want to have a variety of people to show them, you know. So if you're somebody who is willing to talk about these things, you know, come forward and we can find you the people, you know, we're always looking for people right. like that. 
And we're hoping that this way we can give people some information and keep people updated on what's going on and what actions they can take to do it. Um, you asked about what actions people can do. Call your senators, call your congressional reps, tell them, you know, like Biden, President Biden campaigned on saying that he wanted to make more use of his clemency powers because we had too many people who were locked up in prison for far too long, um, who were rehabilitated and should be out, right? Here you've got a group of 4,000 people that have already been completely vetted, and most of them have had almost a year, if not more, some of us have been out for almost two years now. Okay. So you, you got to test drive a whole group of clemency people applicants, right? No president has ever had that opportunity before. So you know, these people are not a risk for your clemency powers. You know, these people are going to make yeah. good on it. This is not going to be like giving somebody clemency and then they go out and do something completely stupid. These are a solid proven risk factor here. And if President Biden there's a, isn't there, there's a term for that. It's called it's called for a, you know, a leader for a president. It's called taking free money on the table. He can right <laughs> a, a good a, a goodwill gesture, granting clemency, which is a no brainer. He should be doing it anyway. But it's it's crazy that it's not you know something that's prioritized that that they're that they're hope. I mean, are they working on are they working on it now, or is there any hint uh, yes. of that? We we've finally gotten somewhere because. Um, you know, at first we were trying to push them just to rescind that stupid memo and leave us on home confinement. But it's very difficult being out like this because we've had a few situations. And like we talked about earlier, the pregnant lady, Raquel Esquivel, yes. like where people have been pulled back for just these silly minor infractions that if they were on regular home confinement, they would never have been pulled back for. They would have just had to spend a couple of weeks at the halfway house. It would have been no big deal. Okay. So we, we can't figure out you know, why they're doing this, but they're just being very draconian and bad faith about it. So I remember one day when I saw one of these come up, I said, I said to a fellow advocate, I said, you know, like, oh my God, if we rescind the memo, it doesn't even matter. They're still going to keep picking us off. And he said, yeah, that's why we're pushing for the clemency. And I was like, oh, so we'd been asking and advocating, calling the White House. They have like a hotline, a comment line you can call and tell them, hey, give these people clemency. Okay, great. We even got our employers. We had a whole letter written by our employers saying, hey, you want the economy started. You want people back to work. These people are all back at work contributing to the economy. Like, what are you doing sending them back to just sit on their butts and watch TV? That's ridiculous. So we've been doing all this advocating, right? And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started getting word. And it was very strange because there was no announcement. It just sort of started happening where the halfway houses started calling people in nonviolent drug offenders, which is strange that they categorized it like that because by definition, any of us out here are nonviolent mm -hmm. uh, who had less than four years remaining on their sentence. They wanted them to fill out a clemency application to be considered for an expedited clemency pro process. We do not know what the word expedited means. <laughs> we don't know how quick that's going to work. What we do know, though, is that when people were submitting them, usually it takes months to hear back a response, like even just a basic, yeah, we got your application. We were hearing back from the U.S. Pardons Office in like 45 minutes on a Sunday night. 
hi, we got your application. You are, are not uh, eligible for the expedited clemency process. Here's your case number. So it appears they're actually looking at it. But unfortunately, you'll notice that I said that they're looking at drug offenders with less than four years remaining on their sentence. Supposedly, there's about a thousand of us who fit in that category. That's only about 25% of us. That leaves out the drug offenders who have more than four years remaining, right? And it also leaves out all of the white collar people, you know, the people who mm. did financial crimes, which is bizarre because of all the people that you don't want to go back, most of them have restitution they need to pay. When they're in prison, they're only paying $100 mm. a year, right? When they're out here, I know, I know somebody who said that they were paying like 50, 60 grand in the last year on their restitution because they were, you know, working and hitting it and making bank and they were paying back their debt to society, you know, that they incurred. So why do you then want to put that person back in prison and pay $35,000 a year for their upkeep to watch TV? That's Incompetence. That's, that's, the only, that's the only word to describe that. That's grotesque incompetence. And yeah. these are people that Bill Barr said are not a threat to a community and do not belong in prison. Mm -hmm. He's not known for being soft on criminals. You know, <laughs> like. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's where we're at now. So now we're pressing and saying, hey, we're hoping that this is just a start. Some of the language that they're using, you know, like currently. People who are, you know, uh, uh, drug offenders with less than four years remaining, that leads us to hope that they're going to open it to others. But we're not going to take that chance that they're not. And so we're continuing to pressure them and say, hey, you need to grant this to all of us because all of us have reformed ourselves and shown that we are positive and productive members of society now. Right. You need to yeah. offer this to all of us because... We've all spent the same time out here under the same restrictions. We have all shown that we have reformed and that we deserve to be given this commutation of a sentence. And it's not a get out of jail free card. When people are granted clemency, a sentence commutation like this, they almost always, it's extremely rare that you don't then have to do your period of supervised release after, which is basically like probation after you get out of prison you know you check in with the probation officer several times a month you know you're you still have to do drug and alcohol testing um you have to live by a whole bunch of restrictions you know just so they monitor you make sure that you're still doing okay the biggest difference for us is that we won't have to wear the ankle monitors anymore and we won't have to account for our every single little move and it will be u.s probation officers supervising us and not the halfway houses U.S. probation officers are skilled and experienced in supervising people out in the community. They know how to work with people out in the community, all right? Mm -hmm. The halfway houses, they are privately contracted by the Bureau of Prisons. Their primary objective is to continue their contract with the Bureau of Prisons. So they want to give them excellent customer service. And they show that they are worthy of having their contract extended by demonstrating that they are really on top of it, very much in control, and really, you know, tightwad enforcing the rules. Keep the recidivism going. That's how they. Yeah, how they keep it, 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 yeah. it just it, it makes it a horrible thing like that, you know. 
And don't get me wrong. There are plenty of U.S. probation officers that are very strict, you know, but they know how to do it. They, they, they're good at assessing people. They know who the risk is. They know who they need to be on top of, and they know who, they know who's doing right and who's, you know, got it together. Yeah. So they're just better for it. So I'm yeah. really, really hoping that they continue this clemency thing and that we all get it, but we still need lots of pressure. So I'm asking yeah, I, everybody, I, <laughs> please. Yeah. And I, I, I obviously hope so too. And I, I mean, I'll link to don't send us back.org in the, uh, on the show notes page and check out the, uh, the Facebook page as well. Um, and I think you made a really important point, a lot of important points, but something that, that kind of resonated with me talking about, you know, all the resources and time that is going towards, you know, this right now, the criminal justice reform, making sure you all don't get pulled back in and get clemency, which is obviously important, but there's so many other things to be talking about for resources to go to this when there's so many people that are still in prison, um, that need to, that should not be in prison and we still many that should never penalty. have been in prison. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a shame, but, uh, it I mean, is. why am I fighting to get Biden to give clemency to people that Bill Barr said are not a threat to the community? Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why this is even a discussion. Well, who was, who was the author of the 94 crime bill? Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's his track record? But, Look, I've uh, always said uh, that, you know, Biden has no uh, reputation for being soft on crime either. But he's also a man of faith, a faith that emphasizes compassion and mercy with their justice. And, yeah, he's going to make us earn that clemency. But I believe that he will grant it in the end because of that. I hope I'm not wrong. I, I I hope you're right too. I mean, what what worries me though, um, Kamala Harris and her criminal yeah, justice not track soft on record, crime either. and she's <laughs> and she's right there. And who knows how much control and influence she has? Susan Rice, right there as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. I mean, people think you know liberals, progressives are going to be you know better for justice reform. Not always. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right but anyway you know I've, we, we've taken more time than, than i said originally yeah. we're over an hour which is totally fine i just i mean i just want to thank you for uh for, for being uh, being so generous with that time and uh going through through your story um i think it was really important for people to understand um what you've been through where you started where you are now um as you know, one of the reasons that, that I've done this show for so long and I bring on people to talk about their experience going through the criminal justice system is to put a a face and a name and a story um, behind, you know, just, uh, you know, seeing a name in a newspaper or on a, on a headline or um, it's makes it so much more, re- more relatable because um, for people that don't know someone who's been to prison, um, or been to prison themselves, um, they, they have no idea of, like, like you were talking about earlier, so many people who are in prison, just normal people. You made a mistake. You got tied up in, in something that, that went off the rails. Um, happens to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, everyone deserves a second chance. Thank you. 
So, um, is there any anything else you you need to you, you want to plug or uh, any any party words uh, before I let you go? There's a, been especially a lot of action uh, going on about this on Twitter, and if people search the hashtag "Keep Them Home," like they'll see a lot of posts about that, um, and they'll see all the different advocacy organizations involved. And I just ask, you know, please, like, call your senators. Like, why do you want your tax money going to this? Like, keep us out here working and contributing positively to the community. I agree. Wendy Heckman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. We're going to take a, a quick break here. I want to tell you about another awesome podcast. And I know you're, you're thinking to yourself, John, I don't need another podcast. There's so many podcasts. I'm here to tell you, you do. You do need another podcast. You need to listen to Good Morning Liberty with Nate and Charlie. Um, these are two guys that bring a fresh take to the Liberty conversation. Um, they have a background in healthcare. They're entrepreneurs. They, uh, they're very educated in, in finance and markets and the stock market. They run a really interesting current events style show that keeps it uh, funny and entertaining. You definitely don't want to miss their segment every Friday, the dumb bleep of the week. They do five shows per week. They're bringing you great content. Good morning, Liberty. Check them out. Okay, want to tell you also, about friend of the show, longtime supporter of Lions of Liberty, Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and uh, his new track, his new song, First World Problems. If you haven't heard it, going to play a clip of it in just a minute here. In the song, Tyler doesn't hold back. He, he rips into cancel culture, grifters, inflation. It's a really good song. It's a really fresh take. Please, wherever you listen to your music, be it Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Please go and uh, like and follow Crypto Man so you get all his music. Support our friend Tyler, a, uh, a guy out there who is fighting for liberty, uh, fighting that cultural battle. And uh, I'm going to play a clip of that new song right now. Check it out. Cost of education when internet is free. Blind window makers simply cannot see. Thanks for tuning in, guys, for another edition, another episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And, you know, for those of you who've been listening to our shows, to this feed for a while, you know that we have more than one show. We have our Monday show with Mark, our Wednesday show with Brian, and uh, we wrap things up every Thursday with Finding Freedom. But you might not know that we have bonus shows that we do, especially this time of the year. We have every single week during football season, we have Degenerate Gamblers with uh, myself and Brian and Rico breaking down uh, fantasy football, breaking down weekly spreads in college and pro sports, and uh, talking about what games we gamble on, and uh, talking about our Degenerate Gambling League we have with our Pride members. And we also have Conspiracy Corner. It's another bonus show we have. Plus, you get access to early shows. You can watch shows live. And you can now join on either Patreon or Locals. Patreon, of course, is patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. And Locals is lionsofliberty.locals.com. You can join. We have different levels, different memberships where you get more access, more merchandise, 
We have uh, monthly calls. If you get up to the $25 level and up at the $50 level, you get to influence a show. So check that out. I would love to have you. It's a growing community. Of course, we have our our private Facebook group and uh, we have a uh, Discord. um, Lots of different ways to get involved in this growing community with Alliance of Liberty as we are working hard to advance the ideas of Liberty Forward, to advance self-sufficiency, to advance um, uh, this lifestyle of taking control of your life. So if you'd like to be a part of that, we would love to have you. Uh, please join us and uh, continue listening every single week. You can do that by subscribing whatever podcasting app you're listening on and giving us a uh, five-star rating and leaving a nice review, which helps us out as well. So this is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire's liberty burning. Oh, 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 o